Welcome. Welcome, listeners, to Functionally Speaking, a podcast more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. I'm your host, DJ Moran, and I'm really glad that you're listening to this episode. I'm really psyched to let you hear a conversation with my very dear friend, Joanne Wright. She is honestly an inspirational therapist, and if you knew her like I do, you would want to embrace her viewpoints as you engage in clinical work. She not only has a heart of compassion, but also the skills for compassion. I could go on and on about her achievements and contributions to the contextual behavioral science community, but I will briefly highlight that she is the founder of Psychological Solutions, a clinic in the Chicagoland area, and she was the conference committee chair for the Association for Contextual Behavioral Sciences Conference in 2014. Most recently, she is co-authoring a book with Dara Westrup that focuses on running therapeutic groups using the acceptance and commitment therapy model. I'm eager for its publication, and you should be too. It will be on New Harbinger, so be on the lookout. As I mentioned, Joanne and I are old friends, so this podcast will be more of a conversation rather than a straight-up interview. Enjoy. Joanne, thank you very much for joining me on Functionally Speaking. I appreciate you letting me record our conversation for the podcast. Nothing I wouldn't do for you. (laughs) I appreciate it. Thank you. And that is what we're going to do. We're just going to have a conversation. Two old friends. We've known each other for quite some time. We went to graduate school together, and we've been through a lot together. worked at the same places. 22 years? Yes. Yeah, 22 years. Yeah, yeah. A lot of fun. And I appreciate our relationship very much. I want to know, how did you get involved um, with... Hofstra University, where we both went together. We both were at Hofstra together. Uh, How'd you get involved with going there? Well, I was at Arizona State University, and that is often called the Skinner Box of the Desert. So just, uh, you know, radical behaviorism, which I loved, and I was very fortunate to be there and learning things. And I started reading about Albert Ellis. Okay. And, you know, that was just like a crazy thought to, you know, the, the behaviorist that, that cognition has anything to do with anything. So I'm reading, I, you know, kind of like in the dark with the, you know, the flashlight <laughs> reading, you know, right, right, right. Like the Albert Ellis stuff. <laughs> and I just naively like wrote to him. You wrote out. I wrote out. Okay. Dear Dr. Ellis, you yeah. know, here I'm a, a little undergraduate. Dear right. Dr. Ellis, I'm interested in, in your theories and practices and um, would like to learn more about them. I'm applying for graduate schools now. Where would I go? Okay. He wrote me back a typewritten letter that contained a typo, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wasn't going to get all, you know, right? irrational about That's it. Right. Yeah. It's a typo. Not perfect. Deal with it. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so, okay. contained a typo and said, you go to SUNY Stony Brook. Or you go to Hofstra University. Okay. I whipped out a map of New York, <laughs> looked, okay. where, looked where Stony Brook was and looked where Hofstra was and okay. said, I think I'd rather be closer to the city. <laughs> nice. Yes. Hofstra's <laughs> much closer than Stony Brook to yeah. New York City. Yes. But I'm not going to go into it myself, but I chose Hofstra for certain types of social reasons as well and fun reasons as well. So cool. So you went to Hofstra basically because Al had suggested that to yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm very, very glad you did because that's where we met, and, uh, and that that really helped. And me I became a lot. your big sister. Yes, <laughs> yes, and uh, and I'm your little brother, which yeah. is kind of interesting. And yeah. uh, you've been a great mentor to me, so I really appreciate it. Over the last several years, you've been getting interested in the concept and the topic of blending compassion into work into your work as a clinician, into the uh, literature you're interested in, in this topic where you, uh, we're calling it Compassionate Intentions. I'd like to know a little bit of uh, your point of view on, on what compassion is and how it needs to be blended into therapy. Yeah. Well, I first started getting interested because when uh, we were working together in a nonprofit organization and I was a training director working with pre-docs, um, I would notice a big difference in, you know, attrition rates and, and you know, patients, how, how patients were progressing over time. Started looking at some of the characteristics of the pre-docs themselves and noticing that those who seem to have this ability to bring compassion into their work um, really fared better, you know, their, their patients fared better um, in the long run. And so, um, started wondering if you could teach compassion. And mm -hmm. so I started looking, that's when I started looking at compassionate intentions and is that something that's teachable? And cool. so, you know, the Merriam-Webster definition of compassion is sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. Okay. And I know for some folks, compassion just means um, sort of that, you know, um, tipping your heart open and having an openness with, you know, the patient or client uh, who's sitting before you. Right, right. And that's why I sometimes was skeptical when you were talking about it. Yes, right. because it was this kind of bleeding heart uh, point of view. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I, I kind of struggled with the idea of why do we have to bring compassion into therapy? Because I was getting the colloquial definition of like having sympathy, like you had to feel compassion. But it seems like you're directing the concept more towards behaving compassionately as a therapist. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, and it, you know, really leads to helping the person move forward, you know, and, and again, the compassion goes further than having the sympathy or empathy for the individual in front of you. Because if you were just doing that, you would just sit right, and right. stew in the suffering and yeah, not right. move forward anywhere. You know, compassion could be dragging somebody out by their hair out of a burning building. Sometimes it takes toughness and sometimes it takes moving quickly and sort of shaking the person metaphorically by their shoulders. And, you know, I mean, the, you know, that happens every now and then. Um, so, yes, in my view, compassion is a lot more than um, just sitting and... and and feeling with the person. Right, That's right. not good therapy to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, and I appreciate that. So I just want to kind of let the listeners know that you helped me walk through um, a, a newer definition of compassion. When we're talking about compassion, we are not just talking about that, that distress that comes along when you feel sympathy. It's, it's not just that. It's the, the compassion has two sides to that definition as, as you uh, were defining it just a few minutes ago. It is that you do sympathize that something is happening. You actually have the sensitivity, the awareness, the empathy that pain is occurring. 
But it's not just that. It's that you have a motivation to do something about it. You can pay attention to it and you actually, you're motivated to help. That's right. Um, and I think that's an important piece. So you come into contact with that ubiquity of human suffering and, right. and you can sit there with them because you have it as they do as human beings and now you're charged to help them move forward. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that, and that was, that was the one area that I was struggling with because I was afraid that compassion blended into psychotherapy was just that colloquial way of talking about compassion. It's like the feeling of compassion. Like you had to, you had to feel sorry for somebody. You had to feel bad. And I'm always thinking that if we already know that suffering is real, and as you mentioned, it's ubiquitous, then if we already know that, then how caught up should we actually get? Right. You know, I mean, I'm just thinking about it from an Albert Ellis point of view, you know, I mean, people suffer. And, uh, you know, if you think about it clearly and, and you understand that that's just part of life, but the way that you view it is more rational, it sets you up for more improved performance. I mean, she was, it's not just Albert Ellis, the first noble truth is life is suffering. Jesus Christ said, in this world, you will have trouble. So as a therapist, I was thinking, I, I don't, I don't feel badly myself emotionally when I see someone suffer, because as you said, it, it's ubiquitous. I was afraid that, I was concerned that compassion-focused therapy was more about having me feel differently, but it was actually not that. It was that I had to act differently. Right. You don't have to resonate and harmonize your emotions with the person. It's good if you can. Right. It's good if you can identify, wow, that person's suffering. I know that. I know that feeling emotionally, experientially, and also you know, intellectually. I know what that person's going through, but I don't have to feel that badly now in order to help. I do think to take a moment to just mindfully drop down into that moment with the patient as they're talking about mm -hmm. their suffering. Mm -hmm. What happens when I do that is it just energizes me all the more right. to want to pull them out of it. Right, right. I like that. I like that. That's a, it's more sophisticated than the way I was thinking about it. Yes, you're, you're actually adding more to it. I am. I'm a big sister. <laughs> right, right. Yes, yes, yes. I just always struggled because I, I thought that feeling badly because the other person was feeling badly would have a deleterious impact on the way I could work with that person. You would just sit and spin on feeling badly. Right, yeah. right. And, and that's not what compassion-focused therapy is all about. It and is not. That's not what compassionate intentions is all about. That's yeah. Right. Good, That's good, right. good, good. And you're also working not only in, in, in the compassion field, but you're also working on groups and you're taking an approach uh, to group therapy from an acceptance and commitment therapy point of view. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. So um, I am the director of anxiety services at a hospital in the Illinois area and we have adult um intensive outpatient programming and partial hospitalization programming, which means that they are here um, five days a week between three and six hours a day. Mm, okay. So they get, you know, between somewhere between like 17 and 25 hours of programming a week. Um, and for the adults, we use pure acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, Very cool. 
and um, Dara Westrup and I are writing a book on doing acting groups, and uh, so super excited about that because there's a few different approaches depending on what type of group that you have, and um, so there are many different ways you can unpack act, whether you're going to do it in, in you know, a way that you're blending the hex effect flex together or whether you're doing it in more of a psychoeducational sort of a way that you're breaking it down, giving them tools to take away with them as they leave and go forward. So they they're, uh, have a, a better understanding of the act model itself as opposed to doing the hexaflex in total. Gotcha. So those are a couple of different ways you can, you can do act groups. Um, we, with our adolescents, we do a blending of DBT and ACT, as you reminded me that I called Actified DBT. <laughs> right, right. I remember uh, that from you, yeah. And, and the reason that we add the DBT component is because we do see a lot of uh, impulse, uh, excuse me, impulsive behaviors that um, really need addressing right away. And so DBT does add that component of of crisis intervention management, which right. we do have to work with, you know, we're working with people that are cutting frequently and drinking and drugging frequently and stuff. So we want to address those issues okay. as quickly as possible. Good. Um, Steve Hayes was actually the first person that got me thinking that it was okay to blend the models because really they are very, very close cousins and there's more overlap than not right. in the two models. You know, we call them fellow travelers. Fellow sometimes. travelers, yes. 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 Um, right. That, you know, Steve even said in a, in a workshop once, he said, you know, my goodness, if, if somebody's got a, a razor blade to their wrist due to stress tolerance. Of course. You know, you know? Of course. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And uh, what is it in particular that you think are some of the marquee issues in ACT that can really be addressed well in a group situation? One of the things I love about doing acting groups is it's so experiential and when you have group members you have, you know, you have more people to do experiential stuff with, like passengers on the bus. You, right. know, you can do, a, yeah. you know, in vivo passengers on the bus and, and have everybody involved. Um, and also you can um, have people, you know, learn vicariously because as you're talking with, with one individual, much like the Ellis model we were talking about earlier, um, that talking with one individual, somebody else is, is dealing with something very similar. Again, we're talking about the ubiquity of human suffering. So how I'm going to talk with one person is not terribly different than how I'm going to talk with the other 18 people in the room. Right. So, right. you know, so getting them together to do activities together, to do experiential exercises together, to learn from each other, to see, you know, in front of them, the ubiquity of human suffering. You know, when, right. they, when they walk out of here and say, wow, you know, I could go to the grocery store and see any one of you and not realize any of you are suffering the same way I yeah. am. And, yeah. and it's sort of a beautiful acknowledgement of oh, we really are all in this together. Right, right. Yeah, good. That, that's a, a good message for folks to be able to take home from an, an ACT group. Yeah, well, you were mentioning Albert Ellis's way of running group. He did it differently than any other group leader I've worked with in the past. And I've worked in the VA and I've worked in uh, certain uh, hospitals and clinics where we run groups, process-oriented groups. But I love the way he did it. Um, for instance, if, if he had two hours blocked out for group psychotherapy, he had 120 minutes, he didn't allow 11 people into the group. And uh, the reason why he 
invited 11 people into the group was because in 120 minutes, he'd need five minutes at the beginning and five minutes at the end just to introduce it and to summarize. So now there's 110 minutes. So he <laughs> gave everybody going around the room, sitting in a circle, each person got 10 minutes. So he'd say to the first person right next to him, so what are you disturbing yourself about this week? And he'd say something like that. And then that person would get Al's attention for five minutes. And then he'd kick it over to a co-leader. And then that co-leader would spend, you know, maybe about two minutes uh, running through the REVT model, maybe doing disputations um, with that person. And there's still three minutes left. So he would, Al would kick it out to the other 10 people. Um, and then they would give that person feedback and maybe have a different point of view of uh, disputing that one person's concerns. And I like that because everyone got the attention from the alpha therapist and from the group and got support from the co-leader. And then it moved on to the next person. So it was cool. So all 11 people actually got attention for their particular problem. But the remarkable part was while one person's talking, the other 10 are listening. Yes. And they're not struggling with that person's problem. Right. So they've got this like bird's eye point of view on this issue. And they're, they're probably like, why is that person anxious about it? It's so silly. He's got to change the way he's thinking. And then it goes to the next person. Why is she depressed about this? Oh my gosh, it's such a simple thing. She's just got to change the way she's thinking. And all of a sudden it gets close Eureka. to you. Now. Oh, maybe I got to change the way I'm thinking. So I mean, I like the way Al did his group. It's yeah. some, some group therapists call something like that the hot seat method yeah. um, and it's an interesting point of view because it's another way of bringing home the idea we all suffer yeah. and there are principles that influence our suffering we can do something about those issues yeah we do something similar in our groups because we have the ability to have them every day you know five days a week that um they do a check-in and wrap-up, which is sort of similar to Al's, you know, five minutes before and five minutes after. But our check-in is they, before they left the night before, they had to name a committed action. Cool. And so they come in the next day and talk about their committed action and whether they were able to do it or not. And if not, then we're going to give them some support around, you know, what, what, might need to be different to try it again and, and why right. might get you to do it again. That's we cool. don't let them pick the same one more than a couple of days in a row because then if they keep you know coming back and they're getting the idea that they're avoiding and they're still not not able to move forward with that, then we might pick a new committed action yeah. for them to, to try out. So it's kind of a cool way to start the group of last night, this is what I did in service of my value of being a present father. I, yeah. You know, took a walk with my son, and that's what I was going to do. Well, did it happen? No, it didn't happen. This is why. And then we start, you know, looking at that from the act perspective of maybe why he wasn't able to complete his committed action. Right. So we go around the room with that. Okay, um, I like that. We're looking at maybe the practical obstacles and also the psychological obstacles. Right, exactly. and Making that part of the grist for the group mill. Right, right. Cool. Yeah. So cool. they get that, and then, and then you know, every day they, we do a few experiential things, and Good. Uh, Passengers on the Bus is a favorite. Yeah, I imagine. And yeah, it, it's, it's just so well set up for, 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 groups. for groups. Yeah, And it can get really, really intense. I think the most intense moment we ever had with uh, Passengers on the Bus was a guy who was in for PTSD 
because he killed his girlfriend in a car accident. Oh my gosh. And in his passengers on the bus, he, he had wanted somebody to call him murderer. Oh my gosh. And the group member was like, man, don't make me do it. And it was, we were crying and it, mm. it, he just afterwards said it was the biggest breakthrough for him to be able to say that out loud and to have people support him. Powerful. Uh, it was unbelievable. So, you know, sometimes some of these experiential exercises seem like they're kind of silly, but they can get incredibly deep. I don't doubt it. Wow. That is a remarkable story. Yeah. A remarkable story. I think the neat thing about acceptance and commitment therapy is that um, there are a lot of powerful tools that can really bring awareness uh, to, to our clients. And I wonder if you have other things that you can share from the you know, ACT approach um, that our listeners might be able to bring into their group work. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we like to talk about with our clients is the collapse of avoidance. Okay. And how, you know, your life has really collapsed down when you respond more to the chatter in your mind that, that takes you away from your valued life direction. And so your life just gets smaller and smaller and smaller the more you respond to that stuff until it's really shrunken down to just a fraction of what it once was. Okay, so what it sounds like you're saying is that we're seeing a, a restriction in the repertoire of, and it has an impact on psychological flexibility. Absolutely. So okay. the more the more they're responding to the avoidance, the less flexible they're becoming. I had a client one time as we were talking about this, and she was uh, had a panic disorder with agoraphobia and hadn't left the house in two years. And coming to the clinic was the first time she'd been in the house, out of the house, excuse me, right. for two years. And when we explained this to her, it really resonated with her. And she said, wow, you know, getting on an airplane and leaving, you know, Illinois got to be too much. So I stayed in Illinois. And that made me anxious. And so I just stayed in DuPage County. And over time, I that was too anxious to, to leave DuPage County. And so I just stay in my neighborhood. And I'd get really anxious in my neighborhood. And then I would stay in my house. Right. And I would get really anxious in my house. So I stayed for the last two years in a 10 by 10 room mm. where I felt perfectly anxious. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. Uh, uh, that's the unfortunate way it goes is you think you're going to control it and it doesn't, it doesn't get controlled. It controls right. you. That's right. And yeah. so... Uh, the happy ending of that story is by the time she graduated from the program, she got on a flight to Washington, D.C. to see her daughter, who she hadn't seen in two years because wow. of agoraphobia. Wow. Yeah. How about that? It's interesting <laughs> that you bring that up, that there was a, a goal involved. I think you did, a, obviously, a remarkable job with that client. But I like the way that you explained it to me at the very end. You said that she went to go visit her daughter. So it wasn't just solely about learning to accept and being mindful, but it was also being value-directed. Value-directed. There was right. a purpose. Right. Yeah. What do you really want to do with your life that you're not able to do now? I want to see my daughter. Yeah. Yeah, neat. Yeah, yeah it's neat where it all weaves together. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm going to congratulate you on your upcoming uh, book, 
Uh, that's going to be about uh, ACT with uh, groups. I think that's fantastic. Thank you. And so I uh, really appreciate you spending time with me today. Um, I think uh, I, th I think this was a great opportunity for both of us to talk for a little while. We've we actually actually should do this again. We have hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of stories and memories that we could go through oh, that I think people would be did. interested in. Anytime, yeah. my brother. All right. Thanks so much. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So definitely be on the lookout for Joanne's book. She's writing with Dara Westrup, and it's probably going to come out in 2015, or we can hope, on New Harbinger about using acceptance and commitment therapy in groups. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon.